Hey friends, it's me, it's Chase Jarvis. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This show is where I sit down with the world's top creators, top entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and I do everything I can to unpack their brains to help you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. Today's show is a doozy because my guest is Mr. Scott Belsky. Scott is, you know Scott's work if you've been in this creator or entrepreneur community. He's one of these guests I couldn't possibly do justice to his resume because he's touched so many things that are out there in the world that I believe you use from books he's created to software products he's worked on. Uh, the short version of his bio was basically the executive chairman of a new professional referral platform called Prefer. This is part of his role as an entrepreneur. He's been involved in so many companies. He's an early investor in companies like Uber. Uh, he was the founder of Behance, that creative portfolio platform that a lot of you use. Uh, Adobe purchased that from him, uh, I don't know, probably half a dozen years ago. Then he was a VP at Adobe. He was in charge of many things like community. And among all of these, <laughs> this, this list, he also created a book called Making Ideas Happen, which was specifically targeted at the creator and entrepreneur uh, communities where so many of us have great ideas, but we don't actually kick them into gear. Scott is a doer. I'm, I'm leaving a ton of stuff out, like his career at Goldman Sachs. And he also had a, a stint as a partner at Benchmark, which is a, one of the top venture firms in Silicon Valley. Uh, anyway, you get the idea. He's an incredibly accomplished entrepreneur and a radical advocate for creativity. The episode is overflowing with nuggets specifically around the common thread of self-awareness. You know, this comes up again and again on this show. He's so smart. He sometimes outsmarts himself in this show in a, in a really elegant way by recognizing rather his imperfections and setting up systems to defend against those. It's just a beautiful way that we can learn uh, from Scott, not just about how his brain works, but how we can apply that to our own lives. And he also does such a good job surrounding himself with people who fill in the gaps where he's weak. I love this part of the show. So many of us, we might be radically creative, but we have problems, you know, taking action or we are good in a small uh, environment with a, a couple of friends. But when something hits scale, we, we don't have the right peer group to bring in folks. to. And he's just such a great example of how to build up your community in such a way that you can bring that to bear in the best way possible. A couple of highlights. He's got this term called the messy middle. Another thing that I love is essentially this refers to the stuff between starting your project or a company or whatever and some fat, you know, fancy exit, whether that's uh, selling your company or, you know, after your photography show comes down or whatever, all the stuff that actually matters to getting from point A to point B. And we just generally celebrate the beginning and the end. But in reality, it's the middle where all the work happens. Uh, he's also crazy militant about uh, the idea of doing rather than planning. Planning can be the enemy because you feel like you're getting, you're, you're making progress, but you're really not. You've heard me talk about this so many times in the show, but it's a really big blind spot. And I love Scott's perspective on this. And so you, uh, we also riff on the value of prioritization. Uh, this is another weak point 
when I realized how to prioritize, I felt a step change in my productivity. And Scott has a couple of really cool tools and a way of visually mapping out these projects uh, such that the lens that, that he puts on that in this episode will instantly help show you where your focus is or isn't. There's, you know, I could keep wrangling or wrangling, rambling about Scott, or I could just shut up and let you listen to him. With that, let's get into the show, but dot, 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 before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks are a cloud-based accounting software, and it's designed specifically for you and me. That's right, for freelancers, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and the self-employed. Very stoked to have these guys on board. If you want to get your accounting on Rails, then I encourage you to check out FreshBooks. And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there, and you will have access to that free trial. That's one sponsor. Today, we have another one. This show is also brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. Um, welcome to the show. It's been a long time in thanks, the making. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy that you're here. Uh, what are you working on right now? I mean, I, I, you know, that's, we'll, we'll unpack that little intro, sure. but like, I, you got a new thing? Yeah, so a few different projects right now. Okay. Um, you know, one is, uh, one is a, a new business okay. that I am a, found, a co-founder of, um, and, uh, and my co-founder in the business is the CEO. Got it. And it's a, it's a company that is really challenging the, the norms these days around, uh, around how labor is partaking in on-demand marketplaces yeah. and online marketplaces yeah. and bidding marketplaces. And you know, we're kind of looking at all of these skilled, relationship-driven service professionals, you know, people that would um, ideally find a client through a referral mm -hmm. rather than online somewhere. Oh, I take and, so uh, much pride in referring friends yeah. to like, I've got the best, like if you're a creator and you want a bookkeeper or an accountant, like I'm right. freakish about this person. Listen, I mean, I think that most people say that they would prefer to find a professional they need in their lives through yep. a referral. And, and also the service professionals also, you know, whether they're a massage therapist, a babysitter, an accountant, yep. a yep. chef, a whatever, yep. you know, they also prefer referrals over anyone else. <laughs> right. and, uh, and so it's like, well, if, if, both party, if both sides of this market prefer to find each other, you know, through this kind of trusted relationship driven way, yeah. you know, why are there all these like, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that are there to basically commoditize labor, you know, to match yeah. based on proximity or price or 3.5 stars from strangers rather than connecting based on relationships. And so yeah. what this company is doing, aptly named Prefer, there you go. Well, um, prefer.com, it's simple, is, um, is to try to help us see the professionals our friends use yeah. And then helping service professionals build their business on their own terms, using their own brand to, uh, to find clients through their clients' friends. It's so smart. So. It's so simple. Like, I take <laughs> a huge amount of pride in who I recommend and who I run around with such that 
Hey, most of the people, I was like, wow, if you can get in to see my hairstylist, well, yeah. don't judge. But if you can get in this, like, he's an amazing guy, X, Y, Z. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, a, there's an element of cultural capital in being able Listen, to recommend. Absolutely, and context matters, by the yeah. way, because you would want to use the hairstylist of some friends and not others. <laughs> for sure. And, uh, and also, I mean, if you're looking for a photographer or for yeah. someone else, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to just say, I need the closest photographer. But really, I mean, you want to figure out if you're hiring someone for a fashion shoot, you would trust the judgment of someone who's in that industry yeah. over someone who just hired them for a wedding or yeah. something. So it's um, it's exciting. I mean, listen, it's an early early stage business. Yeah. There's a lot to figure out. I do believe, though, that eventually there will be a company that makes commerce, like local commerce with people, professionals, um, a little bit more akin to like what it was like in a small town back in the day, yeah. where you'd work with who your friends and oh, neighbors Oh, you gotta go see exactly. Freddie, yeah. And, um, and that's, been, that's been a trend, I think, for me in my own career, is looking at ways that technology hurts rather than helps people and trying to invert it. I mean, if you think back to Behance, yeah. Behance was founded at a time when there were all these design spec contests that were trying to get creatives to do work for free. Yeah. And creatives would also never get attribution for the work that they did. You never really know who actually did a campaign or, or you know, shot a photo or retouched it or did the typography or whatever. Yep. And so the idea of like fostering attribution in the creative world was really about Behance yeah. uh, or what was, the, what was our mission back then. And, and now um, similarly with Prefer, it's kind of helping empower these relationship-driven professionals to retain their pricing power, you know, work on their own terms rather than subjugating themselves to some on-demand platform. Great, well that's one of the reasons I wanted to open with Prefer. I know it's new. And it also requires that in order for it to be successful, it requires people be on the platform, it right? It does, yes. But that's a big, that's a big ask. Um, but that's one of the reasons I want, if you're at home, it is an incredible service. It's something that I would provide, or I would find that would provide an, an insane amount of value. So we're planting the Thank seeds you. there. But cool. you already did the hard work because I was just about to tie <laughs> that back to a thread. I jumped in real no, quickly. No, but you're good at this. Yeah. You're a professional. Um, like that. The thread in your work about, you use the word attribution for mm -hmm. creators. This is connecting people. And I think uh, if, my understanding of Behance is it's a place for folks to showcase and discover talent. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that still, yeah. is that the way you think about it? And you, you, can, you can see and smell the similarities to Prefer, but this is just focused specifically on creators. Yep. So take us back to 2006. You're, Back you're, to 2006. Actually, maybe before. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's actually, this is worth noting. Uh, speaking of, in your intro, I talked about all this being hyphens. You started at Goldman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you laugh. So why, like, why is that funny to you? You know, I, so undergrad in college, I was a business major and basically minored in design. I took okay. all the design classes in the um, human ecology college at Cornell. And, uh, and so uh, I was always kind of, in between the two, you know, and, and at Goldman, my only finance job that I took there was a year and a half, and then I rotated to another job in the organization focused on kind of organizational improvement and yeah. succession planning and stuff like that, where I actually was using Adobe Illustrator to express, you know, ideas and to help um, help the firm do a lot of this planning and visualization. Got it. And I, I remember trying to request a, a version of Adobe Illustrator for my computer in Goldman Sachs. People being like, what? <laughs> like, what? Why? <laughs> um, so design was always like kind of core to how I approached my work. And, uh, and Behance was really born out of frustration with just a lot of my friends who were in the creative community who were always struggling to get their career um, to be productive. And they were always saying, gosh, you know, I'm 
I, I, I'm always kind of struggling to make it, and yet I'm so talented. And I kind of got frustrated with this. It was yeah. like, well, stop working for agencies that work for agencies that work for you know headhunters that work for agencies. You know, start yeah. working for yourself. Take your career. You know, take the reins on your own career. So, uh, so Behance was founded with this mission of to organize the creative world. And I remember telling people that, and people being like, oh, you know, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, we had a focus group early 2006, the first and only focus group we ever had at a company, at the company, where we pitched all the different things we were doing. We made these paper products at the time. We had an online um, task management and project management application called Action Method. We had a conference, and you know, we still have a yep, conference called the 99U Conference, Incredible. which is ninth year, this yeah. ninth year this year. Um, and we also were developing this idea for portfolio display online. And we asked people you know, what they thought of these ideas. And I was looking actually at, I moved recently and I was looking at all like this old paperwork and I came across these surveys, it's funny, um, just a few weeks ago. And, uh, and unanimously people were like, well, don't do the community. They were like, we have MySpace, we have Facebook, we have all these different places. Like the last thing we need is yet another place to like connect and whatever. Um, but when we asked people what they were struggling with, they were saying, well, my, you know, my portfolio is always outdated. No one can find me in the world of Google. You know? um, in terms of like photographer New York, you're not gonna find you know, one particular person's website right. necessarily. Yeah. They always, always felt like they were at the mercy of these middlemen. They hated spec contests. They never got attribution for their work. These are the things that we were hearing. Yep. And so we were like, wow, so you're telling us that the last thing you want is another creative community. Yet everything you're telling us suggests to us that there is a new type of creative community that should be created. And so that was actually the, the birth of Behance. Oh, wow. And it was also a major lesson to me, which was you know, understanding the differences between what your customers say that they want and what they really need and asking the right questions and not relying on focus groups. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> the one and, and only focus group. Yeah. So that was, that was uh, and then it was five years of bootstrapping this business. It was painful. We had in multiple. We had multiple near-death experiences, um, and then a couple, a, a little less than two years at, at being a venture-backed company, and then um, and then when Adobe was shifting to their creative cloud model, mm -hmm. you know, away from like this old stodgy packaged software business yep. into more of a you know relationship-driven business with their customers, they realized that. They needed a community. I mean, yeah. they needed a way to understand what the customer's creating on a daily basis and staying connected with them. And so um, that's when you know, we became part of Adobe at the end of 2012. And I have to tell you, like, everyone talks about these unicorns in the, in the tech industry. I think a true unicorn is an acquisition that actually works yeah. uh, because that seldom happens. You know, usually like the yeah. company, the team just disbands and the mission has yeah. gone and whatever. Yeah. You know, but four years later, the team is largely still together. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty remarkable to see, see uh, the, you know, the continued evolution of Behance. Well, so the backstory, fascinating. You, you mentioned in there, again, you're, you're very good at your job. You've, you've dropped a bunch of nuggets in there. I've got to go back and visit. So sure, sure. multiple near-death experiences. And so this is for the folks at home who are like, whether you're starting a company like Scott or as an independent artist, you're you going to have all kinds of near-death experiences where you almost miss your rent payments mm -hmm. and you've realized that student debt's got you down and you have to change careers because X, Y, Z. In the, found, in the startup world, uh, when you've got other employees and you've got you know, payroll on a much grander scale than just yourself looking after yourself, what are some of those near-death experiences? Recap some of those things. Yeah, um, I mean, I remember we had a office manager, Brittany, who was sitting in in, um, in my office, you know, in this little little space we had in on Broadway in New York, and uh, 
and she was basically saying, you know, we're two and a half months away from basically not being able to make salaries. And I was like, well, let's review expenses again. Like, what are we doing? You know, what can we push off? And, uh, you know, let's, let's rethink, like, the hiring plan. Like, do we really want to bring anyone else on right now? And, and um, I'll tell you, though, that conversations like that developed the sense of resourcefulness that I believe was more valuable to us than resources. Um, this ability to say, all right, you know, let's really, really hear, like, what do our customers need now that they're willing to pay for? Let's stop investing in things that we're not even sure they're willing to pay for. Yeah. Let's also think about, you know, how, how can we be more resourceful in, in how we're working and how we're measuring ourselves and in, um, you know, anything superfluous that we're doing, let's stop. I mean, it just, it gave us this feeling of the granularity of our business, of what we were creating and what our customers wanted that I think you lose yeah. when you have too many resources and you don't have to do it. Yeah. And so I, I think it made us a stronger business. It was a near-death experience because any little whim, you know, in the economy or yeah. in our team or whatever could have killed us, yeah. right? Um, and it's always tricky because when entrepreneurs ask me now, wow, you bootstrapped for five years and you were always kind of teetering at the brink of not being break-even, would you recommend that to me? Because it sounds, you know, in retrospect, like, oh, like we actually retained a majority ownership of our business. We didn't have to dilute ourselves too much with yeah. too much venture capital. But I, I don't think I'd recommend it to anyone <laughs> because it's almost like one of those things, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I don't know, like how many things should you do that almost kill you? It's, it's not necessarily wise. Um, so there, so I think those are some of the things that come to mind. The other thing I would say is, uh, is the benefits of loyalty you know, in a team. And I was always very transparent with the team. Like, here's where we're at. Yeah. Because I knew all these people would get better, more lucrative offers elsewhere. And, and I knew that the long-term vision of what we were hoping to achieve wasn't enough to motivate us every day yeah. to work under these condition, sure. conditions. I kind of had to say, you know, th this, is, these, this is the truth. You know, this is where we're at. Let's let's like persevere. I mean, let's roll up our sleeves and for like one moment in our lives, let's just kind of stick with it and believe. And and there were a lot of those conversations in those years that I think made us stronger. Um, but again, you know, it was always always teetering at the point. Well, I love access. Access is a core value of Creative Live. I love access yep. to um, not just for the creators to have access to world class experts, but the way we talk about it internally is radical transparency. Yeah. Anyone in the company can put a meeting on my calendar. Yep. And I'm happy to take it. Um, how important do you think that is for not just building culture in a company, but for an individual? Because so many people who are listening are, are solopreneurs, are creators trying to get off the ground, or the way we talk about it here is go from zero to one, get off the ground, or one to 10. Yep. And how important is transparency with with a creator and one's yeah. audience. How do you think about that? And also with ourselves. Yeah. You know, I, I've always I've always believed that the greatest competitive advantage in business is self awareness. Um, when you're at the peaks and everything's going really well, um, you tend to feel infallible. You tend to feel, you know, unpenetrable. You know, you don't want to listen to anything. Like you 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 think you're right more than you should be thinking you're right. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so in that instance, that's where it kind of a lack of self-awareness helps the um, helps your competitors just you know leapfrog you, yeah. and that's really where incumbents die, right? Yeah. It's because they stop being self-aware of what's going on around them. And then when you're in the valleys as opposed to the peaks, you know this is where you um, this is where like your darknesses rear their head, 
And, uh, and this is where the team, you know, the worst comes out in everybody. The self-doubts that we have the, um, and, and, and the struggles. Uh, and it's where we start to have to realize that, you know, like, like Carl Jung says, you know, everything that irritates us about others is a window into our soul. You know, we have to start to ask ourselves, like, why is everything bothering me? You know, what's really going on? Why is so-and-so working out? Like, how do I make sense of this behavior? So I think that the, the, the investment in self-awareness, which I think in part is transparency, is having an, an environment where people can speak up, challenge each other. I mean, one of the things I do remember from the early days that accompanies transparency, I believe, is fighting. You know, if everyone kind of knows what's going on and everyone has a strong opinion and everyone's empowered to speak, you're going to get disagreement. Yeah. And the, we had the very big kind of all outs, you yeah, know? Knock down, drag yeah. out. Yeah. And we never, we, but we never ended a day without sharing conviction. Yeah. But we were also never held back in expressing and defending and advocating for our views. And so I believe that that was helpful in keeping everyone engaged, keeping everyone honest, you know, no one would ever, um, the one thing I would always fight as a, as a, as a leader um, was apathy, you know? Yeah. When to someone, me, apathy, yeah. like cynicism, yep. apathy and cynicism are the things that I, I mean, I've, I, I feel like I'm pretty tolerant as yep. a leader. Those two things are like absolute poison. I got no tolerance 100%. for them. And, uh, and I agree with you, because skepticism yeah. is good, yeah. but cynicism is yeah. dangerous. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that these are, the, these are, the, these are the, the nuances, I believe, of like leading one of those journeys. And it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very burdensome and all-encompassing because you always feel like you're managing the immune system of your team. And you're always trying to you know, sniff out any sort of infection and you're trying to address it and you're trying to bring everyone's kind of voices up front. And, uh, but it, it feels good when you have an, an, a startup or you know, an early stage venture or a project or anything. Yeah. And if you really know and you're tuned into why you're reacting, why you're feeling the way you are, it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's power. So this, as long as we're going backwards, we're pulling on some threads throughout yep. your career now. You, we, we connected the role and the service that Behance provided for its community relative to one that you aspire to with Prefer. Um, the thread that is also really prominent in your career as far as, you know, I've known you for a few years now and you can look back and connect some, some dots is around the doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty uh, unashamed of saying 90% doing, 10% planning. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks you know, lists and all the planning gets in the way of the doing. Um, so in, you know, as it relates to your book, um, as it relates to a lot of the talks that you've given online and your philosophy, you've made a career out of um, helping others get shit done. Yeah. So was that, a, is that, a, was that intentional? Is that a personal aspiration of yours? Is it just an opportunity that you saw to help add value? What's, what's the framework for how we should think about your role in, in helping people make ideas happen? Well, I think that it, it um, you know, it's specific to the creative community. I, uh, I was always very frustrated by, you know, how many ideas there are and how much thirst there is for more creativity when in fact, what a lot of us need, a lot of people watching this, I believe in the creative world need, is just um, is, is, is fewer ideas and more organization around the ones they've already got. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think that actually, execution and organization are, are some of those you know, forces that just you know, propel us way forward way more so than more planning. I love, the, I love the 
Herb Keller quote from you know, Southwest Airlines that you know, I have a strategic plan, it's called doing things. <laughs> and there's something beautiful about that. It's just kind of the more, the more you do, as long as you're honest with yourself, the more you're learning what's working, what's not working, the more you're optimizing, doing more of what works and less of what doesn't. And, and you're just, also I think that action begets action. Yeah. When you feel like you're making progress and your team feels like they're making progress, you make more progress. Which is also one reason why, as a leader of a creative team, you need to merchandise the progress that you're making to your people. Ooh, like, give me a break that down. They actually have to. Everyone has to see that you're making progress as a team, and it just doesn't. It's it's not as logical as it may seem because day to day, oftentimes it doesn't feel like we're moving the ball forward. Yeah, you know, there's still a lot of churn and back and forth and sunk costs and trying things or whatever, and uh, and the traditional metrics of progress like more revenue, more customers, more clients, or whatever it is for you, yeah. um, those, those measures are not always available to us. And they're actually not always even there, especially when you're starting out on a bold project that doesn't even have, you know, it hasn't even launched yet, doesn't have any customers. And so you kind of have to manufacture your own metrics in between. And, um, and then when, you're, when, you do that, when you do that, what, what could this actually mean? It could mean, printing out all of the tasks that are being completed for yourself or your team and putting them up on the wall just to see that like you're yeah. actually making progress. Done. Yeah, like I mean the idea of a to-do list where when you check something off it disappears seems masochistic to me. <laughs> right. It's like You want to see the line through of that. Of course you do. And it's it's a, but it's our psychology. Yeah. Like, we have to feel like we're making progress in order to continue making progress. It's just it's one of those things that um that I, you know, that I came across amongst a lot of other things when I was writing Making Ideas Happen. I was going to all these especially productive creative teams that consistently defy the odds again and again and make ideas happen, whereas most of us just have ideas and then more ideas and then more ideas and then more ideas and just try to stay afloat. And what a lot of those teams, you know, one of those things that a lot of those teams did is they would, um, first of all, they had a bias towards action. So everything was always like capturing things that start with a verb. You know, they would, if they left meetings, that, that, that had nothing actionable coming out of them, they would just cancel the meetings going forward. They would measure the value of their meetings in actionable steps. They would uh, have a culture of their team where if they were talking and someone said something, oh, I'll do this, but they didn't write it down, that they could say, did you capture that? It was little, little things like that that just kind of kept the ball moving forward um, and, then, and, then, and, and kept people feeling like they were making progress. So that is super easy to see from the lens of an organization like you know, action items, takeaways from the meeting, whatnot. Yep. How do you, I don't know, maybe even prescribe is the right word, maybe we can get tactical for a second because there's so many good, I mean, the book is awesome, especially if they're like most folks who are in the space that we're talking about, that's the where they struggle. There's plenty of creativity, but the constraints, and you, you put a few things in there and it, it can often paralyze people. So it's easy for me to, to extrapolate, and I think maybe some of the folks who are listening or watching but let's get tactical for a second. Like, mm -hmm. what, what is, what, how should a creator measure their day to day? It was, is it literally having a list and being able to, you know, keep one mega list so you can feel good about what's crossed off? Like, you, you've studied groups, but you've also yeah, studied yeah. individuals. So, well, I think it starts with, um, first of all, it starts with this bias towards action, everything you do. So, I don't care what tools you use or what paper products or whatever, what pens or whatever neurotic system everyone uses, you know, to, <laughs> yes. to feel like they're engaged with their work and that they love the way of tracking and managing, which is important. But, uh, but whatever it is, having this bias towards capturing things that start with verbs 
and making sure that they're done is, is, is the first step. You know, the second thing is around prioritization. The, uh, the, 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 if you take all of the projects that are going on in your life right now and you place them along this kind of imaginary energy line, I would call it, starting at idle and then low, medium, high, all the way to extreme, and you were to place your projects along those energy, that energy line in terms of where you, how much energy you should be allocating to each project and the tasks associated with each one. When you do this sort of exercise, uh, the first thing you'll, you'll typically realize is that there are too many projects on the medium, high, and extreme side. It's very hard to determine like, which ones deserve low or idle, like yeah. no energy at all. It's sort of the equivalent of going to a computer, you know, opening up every single application at once and then wondering why it's so damn slow. Right? It's just yeah. because the RAM you know, just yeah. can't keep up with the demand. So forcing yourself to put some of those things on the medium, low, and idle side of the, of the spectrum, by doing so, empowers you in the morning when you have the most energy to over-index on the things that are on the high end in, in exchange for missing deadlines or falling behind on the things that are on the medium, low, and idle side of the equation. So it's important to do that kind of either a physical thing, like you make an energy line for yourself, so you just visually always know, like, where should I be pushing energy right now? Yeah. And, um, and then with your team, if you do this, what you'll, what you'll realize is that people have the projects you're collectively working on at different places along the energy line. There's a misalignment among the folks you work with as to where the energy should be spent. And I actually believe that that's why deadlines are missed in the world. It's not because people don't care. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's because people aren't aligned on where the energy should be spent at any given point. And at you as the leader, if you tell your team, hey, you know, these are the things you can miss a deadline on in exchange for making sure that you meet or, de- meet or beat a deadline on these other things, on the, like, the high and extreme side of the, equa- of, the, of, the, of the line. So that's like another trick maybe or tactic yeah. to, to making sure that your energy is, is being spent wisely. So smart. And I, I think the alignment part, I, I'm just looking backwards at some recent meetings here at Creative Live, and I think the meetings, or the meetings, the, the, the big boulders, yeah, the big yeah. rocks that we want to move, the ones where we are all very clearly aligned, mm-hmm. they move so much more smoothly yeah. than, ah, that's really... And all the little things. Yeah. 100%. But I think being clear about what is important to you is um, you know the step two in your yeah. world is the prioritization, and the leader is organizer. I mean, it's it's important to to point out that oftentimes in the creative world, especially you know agencies or small design firms or small practices are founded by a creative. Yeah, and uh, and then oftentimes you know the creative's litmus, litmus test for hiring other people is you know would I want to have a beer with this person? You know, are they fun? Are they creative like me? Are they you yeah. know? And can they riff? Can they brainstorm and whatever? And when you hire this like team of creatives, you know, it becomes this like intoxicated orgy of idea generation, and nothing ever gets done. <laughs> and so it's so important. You got to have like these sober monitors, you can call them or whatever. But you know, these <laughs> these people that um, can keep you on point and can call you on a lot of this stuff. Do you see your what 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 of those roles do you see yourself in? Because you yeah, clearly are a creator. You've built you know so many businesses, and what we can talk about your investing and all that a little bit later, but. Um, do you put question. yourself in, in one camp or another? I think I have, a, uh, I have another problem, which is um, you know, there, there are those dreamers, like the creatives, the, the, the doers who are sort of like always like, you know, what's getting done, what's getting done. And then there are these like third type of people that I call the incrementalists who rotate from dreamer mode to doer mode, um, to dreamer mode to doer mode again and again and again. The problem with those people like me, I believe, is that they never, they, they risk not scaling any particular thing. 
you know, if they don't have other people around them that are holding them accountable and, and, and making sure that there is enough sort of discovery and then enough execution before moving on to something else, yeah. that you're liable to just have a lot of things that are created but never really see their full potential, which is why I've always believed I need a team around me. Yeah. You know, I really benefit from having other people I work with for that reason. Is that so you've over-indexed on the scaled startup side because you, there is the bandwidth, the resources to have folks that are around you, is that? Yeah, and I think that uh, I think that if I were always kind of doing everything solo in isolation, you know, I don't think I would, um, you know, I would achieve something that's sustainable. Like, you know, Behance was a 10-year venture, basically. And, uh, and I hope that it's just like always a way for the creative community to showcase their work and connect. Um, but I don't think it would have, it certainly would not have become what it was without, obviously without the team yeah. um, holding, holding us to it and, and rounding out my tendencies. Hey folks, I want to inject another quick word from our sponsor, FreshBooks. I want to give a shout out to those guys. Reminder, FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software created specifically for creators, freelancers, and the self-employed folks like you and me. They just launched an all-new version designed from the ground up that is fantastic. A quick, quick backstory. I once did, for a whole year, a paper ledger accounting and then did my own taxes, handwritten, without the help of an accountant or any software. It was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. And I just think about how much time and energy FreshBooks would have saved me in that year of my life. Uh, so simple to use. Couple of my favorite features. One is you can create an invoice in less than 30 seconds. Super, super easy. Another one is that, <laughs> this is related, you can see when your clients have actually viewed your invoice. So that removes that idea of hey, I never saw your invoice. And then the last one, which is a, a big thing nowadays, is you can literally with two clicks accept online payments like credit cards, get those funds direct into your bank account so you can get paid faster. And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there, and you will have access to that free trial. So I'm obsessed with doing. Yep. And maybe that's the bias for action you talk about that is... Um, um, a, an important characteristic for, especially for creators. It's not an accident that I married a producer. My <laughs> wife is my wife is a producer, and she basically should deserves all the credit for producing my career in photography. Um, but what about uh, tactically for those folks that are creators, yeah. yet especially solopreneurs or their um, freelancers or indie folk, like, and you don't have that that you, you talked about having a team. I. Uh, you know, my wife Kate put mm -hmm. together uh, the, the the team in my backstory, and then here at Creative Live, I basically surround myself with operators yep. who are talented and can make the trains run on time and get shit done. But having studied this for so long and written books on the topic, what about like what's the medicine? What's the 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 aspirin for the individual creator? I think that the um, it's somewhat controversial because. I love uh, it. <laughs> You know, I think that there is uh, you know, the theme I've seen across the individual creative practitioners that are especially productive is that they have accepted what I like to call the creative's compromise, which is essentially you know, compromising some aspect of your natural creative tendencies 
to always come up with something new, to always be dreaming, to always be pushing that frontier of imagination, you know, in exchange for a discipline of organization that is not natural to them. You know, something that feels synthetic and um, you know, not completely native. Um, and it's, uh, so it's like a discipline, a discipline that people uh, take on um, recognizing that they are, in fact, compromising you know, some aspect yeah. of their, tenants, their natural tendencies um, in order to produce, in order to make. And uh, it's hard to do alone, which is why I think people either marry a producer or <laughs> you know, someone who's an organizer or <laughs> well, That's the importance, underscores the importance of community, who totally. you surround yourself with, yeah. whether it's Behance or here at Creative Live. Or I yeah. just don't think that you know, the myth of the lone creative genius is, is just that. Yeah, it's a myth. Um, it's a myth because... I, so many great ideas will be conceived and, 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 and die in the minds of creatives who just never got their shit together. Um, and I think we need, to, uh, we need to challenge ourselves to, to adopt that discipline, again, at the expense of like, some of our creative whims, yeah. um, as well as surround ourselves with people that hold us accountable. You know, what does that mean? It means sharing ideas liberally before they're ready to be shared, which is sort of like a, you know, a shocking thing to a creative professional that cares so much about you know, the polish and, and sending the message exactly when it's ready and not a moment too soon. Um, but on, on the contrary, you know, what I, what I hear from a lot of great entrepreneurs and, and artists mm-hmm. is that when they share their work prematurely, uh, they benefit from the accountability and the feedback and the dots being connected by people around them and that those benefits outweigh the costs of someone potentially stealing the idea yeah. or of just them feeling like, you know, they kind of violated their creative ethos of not sharing it until it's ready. Right. Well, along that sort of the paradigm that you were just discussing, where you've got, what are some of the violations that you see or the, the, the again, having studied this, having lived it yourself, what are a lot of the myths and the lies that we tell ourselves that perpetuate our biggest challenges? You, know, mm-hmm. you, you talked about you know, sharing ideas before it's too soon and about structure, but what are some other, like the, I'm trying to help folks at home be self-aware. Like, give them the Scott Belsky filter. So, like, you know, you have a problem if you know. G- give us a handful of things that you f- that you saw consistently through your time at Behance and and now as a leader yeah. in other organizations. Like, what are the ways that that people get tripped up? Well, I think that uh, organization is not a badge of honor, or sorry, disorganization yeah. is not a badge of honor uh, in the creative world. Even though sometimes we tell ourselves that. You know, this is part of my gift. You know, it's that's bullshit. Um, you know, you gotta, you yeah, gotta. It yeah. is really, it is overcoming that and realizing that we all have to give something up in order to make any particular idea see the light of day. I used to think that the <laughs> schedules were there, like that was part of the man's constraint to keep right. me down. Right. And then you start applying some rigor sure. to a schedule, and it's like a catapult. It's like it's so totally. it, it focuses you. It limits your. Um, it, it provides some creative constraints. Yep. Time is one of the most. E- easily impl- uh, easily uh, created yep. like a, a deadline, something yep. you can create for yourself to motivate work. And if you're not being given these constraints, like a deadline or even a budget, seek them. I mean, honestly, one of the most uh, when I ask uh, creative teams, like, when are the you know what are the worst projects you've ever had, or what, when did things go completely awry? I have often heard it was when a client came and said, "No budget." You know, like no, to, just like do whatever. Like think big. I don't want you to be constrained. You know, is that that ended up 
poorly, you know, turning yeah, out badly. Right. It's, it's kind of like we need constraints and we're not being given them, we need to seek them, which is mm-hmm. somewhat counterintuitive sure. to the natural creative tendency to be like, oh no, I wanna have a client who just says whatever yeah. and let me just be, be creative. That's, not, that, that, that's a myth in itself. I think the, um, the belief that we can do it alone um, or that we don't need um, the help around us as much as we actually do. Um, I think there's a, there's a myth um, or a stigma around self-marketing in the creative world where we tell ourselves we shouldn't be marketing ourselves um, mm. when in fact you must. The tragedy of talent is when no one knows what you're capable of because you're not telling them. Now there are shameless ways and non-shameless ways to do it. I think one of the best non-shameless ways to do it is to be a curator of what's interesting to you so that you're always sharing like, and, and pushing out things that you find interesting that folks in your industry, potential clients or whoever are engaging with and sharing. And so they're tuned in. So whenever you have something new you want to do, they're already listening. Yeah. Uh, another myth is that there are no competitors in the creative world, that we're all just kind of like peers and competition is a dirty word. I've seen so many examples. I mean, I, one of my favorite ones was, uh, was Noah Kalina, you know, Brooklyn-based photographer. Yeah for you know, whatever, 15, 20 years, um, he has now been shooting a photograph of himself every single day. And many, many years ago, you know, he was doing this maybe for only five years at that point. This is the early days of YouTube yeah, for context, this. right? Uh-huh. And he, uh, you know, he, 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 he's sort of a struggling photographer, I believe at the time, kind of shooting to put like bread on the table type of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and he, about five years into this, shooting a photograph of himself every single day, you know, and is coming comes across like a story of another uh, photographer, a woman who had been taking a photograph of herself every day for two years, and she's talking about how she's about to like debut this, you know, some sort of gallery or do something with it, and he's like, "There's no way she's going to beat me to the punch," you know, and so in a matter of a week or so, he puts together this beautiful montage of every single photograph in rapid succession. He has his girlfriend at the time, this pianist, Carly Commando, like do this incredible, you know, uh, beautiful piece of music, and then they put it, he puts it up on YouTube. And it becomes one of the most viewed YouTube videos of all time. And uh, he gets on the cover of these magazines and like morning shows and whatever else. And it was the perfect time, right, to just like get this thing done. This had been going on for five years with no one knowing about it really. And then it, the impetus to act and actually debut it to the world and build his career on it was, was competition. competition. Yeah. Was tuning into what another photographer was doing, right? And so we have to pace ourselves with people around us. We have to recognize that none of us are above the need for an impetus to act on something. And, uh, and that's one, another one of those myths that we need to overcome. And that did, just my understanding of Noah's work, that did catapult him into a much more successful career than he was yep. having before. It's one of those five or 10 year overnight success stories. Right. I think he shot Zuckerberg's wedding right yep. after that. There was a bunch of, uh, bunch of campaigns that he actually got aligned with. So, but isn't competition a dirty word? I mean, aren't we all just friends here to make cool shit? Right. I mean, that's, I think that's the myth. You know? <laughs> right. I think that, uh, I mean, listen, competition is, it's less about wanting others to do poorly, as, and it's more yeah. about wanting yourself to do your best work ever. Yeah. It's not a zero-sum game. That's the thing that I feel like 100%. if someone, I, I encourage people to stop, like, not, you need to know, it's, it's, I, I equate it to flying. Like, you need to know where the airport is, you know where the other planes are, yep. but you're flying your own ship. 100%. And, and it's so often people either obsess over something, like this other photographer, 
um, or completely ignore them, neither of which are effective. Correct, right, yeah. neither of which are healthy. Yeah. Uh, it's probably something in between. You know, you don't want to obsess over them because then you're gonna end up looking like a poorer version of them mm -hmm. and you don't want to ignore them because you need them to motivate you and you need, especially in the middle of the journey, we were talking about you know, the lack of metrics and, and proof that you're making progress. Yeah. It is helpful to have other forces, other people around you, the forces of competition, yeah. to just keep you doing, um, as you were saying. It's, it's super important. Yeah, so um, I think you covered most of the, like, the ones that, that I've heard you talk about yeah, yeah. publicly before. One of the ones I haven't heard you talk about is the psychology of the creator, mm -hmm. self-talk. And presumably, you know, leading creative teams, analyzing them, writing books about them. Yeah. What's, you know, I, I like to believe that the psychology is one of the key differentiators. It's like with, with sports, for example. Totally. The, the differentiator between the fastest race car driver and the second fastest race car driver from a technical aspect, it's, it's almost zero. It's hundreds mm -hmm. of a second. But the the psychology is dramatically different from the person who's on the podium every week to the person who's not. Right. With with respect to creatives, yeah. how A, what have you seen? Yeah. B, what's some what are some remedies or things that you would some advice from Scott Belsky? Well, uh, I think the uh, it kind of comes back a little bit to the competitive advantage of self-awareness. Um, what I also think though, and I always I always try to um, advise any teams or individuals that I know who are kind of embarking on very long journeys filled with ambiguity, uncertainty, doubt, self-doubt, and doubt from others, mm -hmm. and uh, is, to, um, is to first accept the fact that the motivation for your like long-term vision, how you see yourself, which yeah. is very important, and it also is a great way to hire people and to de decide yourself to kind of quit a job and like do something you've always loved, right? But that long-term vision is not enough to motivate you on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. it is, um, it's a great North Star, it's a great hiring tactic, it's a great impetus to do something bold, but it is not enough to keep you engaged on a daily basis. And, uh, and what you need to do on a daily basis is have a set of short-term rewards that we've basically, frankly, all been addicted to since birth. You know, and it's it started with the parents' love, you know, and gratification for something that we've done. Uh, it then became like the check on the test or the grade in the course, and then the salary every two weeks and the bonus at the end of the year. And I remember at one of our 99U conferences, uh, venture capitalist from New York, Fred Wilson, you know, mm -hmm. made this comment that, you know, the two greatest addictions in life are heroin and a weekly salary, and how to unplug yourself um, from that salary, you know, is to really unplug yourself from all of these short-term rewards that we kind of use to govern our behavior and keep us motivated, yeah. even when the thing we're trying to achieve is years and years away. Uh, so we have, to, we have to realize that we're not above needing them, and we have to create them for ourselves. And so a big part of the psychology of any sort of long-term creative project is hacking your own reward system. It is creating some synthetic short-term rewards for yourself personally, like, you know, it could be as silly as, um, as uh, you know, I'm going to, I have so many stories. Like I remember one, one designer, um, she told me that 
she wrote a letter to her high school guidance counselor that basically said that she was she had ultimately become a failure and she had never done this and this and this and that and she put it with his address and a stamp on it and she said that if I don't achieve X you know by next month I am going to mail this letter and it was just so mortifying to her like what would actually happen if she mailed this letter and you know what she then would have to talk about with him and like all right. this weird stuff that would be ramifications of that action but it was her own little hack to get herself to like accomplish something over the course of the next month with Behance you know the story i like to tell is how um, whenever we typed in Behance into Google, it always said, do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? It was like, you know, early, in, early on, the, the, the plea to the team was, we will someday no longer be a mistake. Like if we get enough portfolios out there, enough blog posts published, enough link back love from Google, you know, we will no longer be an SEO mishap. And, uh, and, uh, and then lo and behold, like eventually, you know, we typed in Behance into Google, and this is now, you know, a more like, sub one year of project, like more like yeah. months rather than years. And, and Google knew who we were, you know? And then actually, I kid you not, Beyonce became popular like a year later and <laughs> we were back to where we started again. So no, these like no. little short-term hacks are like so important yeah. as a way to keep your team engaged and keep yourself engaged. And so you have to become a designer of, of, those, of those hacks just to keep yourself engaged. I think that's one of the reasons that, um, that I have become a little more prescriptive that one of the reasons that uh, I'm friends with folks like Tim Ferriss and yeah. people who are productivity or hacker experts. And I think while why that those communities have overlapped, we're both friends with Tim. Uh, one of Tim's great hacks is um, if you want to, you know, for Tim, it's probably like get down to 10% body fat or some one of his hacks that if you don't do it, you've, you've written a check, say, to the political opposition for you know, some amount that would be extremely painful. You, yeah. put, you do the same thing, you put that in an envelope, and if yep. by X date you haven't reached this, then that check goes into the mail to the political uh, opponent. A huge part of success is this stuff. Yeah. By the way, we never talk about it. Yeah, it's that's weird. kind of why I'm here. Yeah, it's weird. This. It's not like directly, logically correlated with the project you're working on. Yeah. But we are just, as you said, psychological beings, and we are at the mercy of what our minds tell us. And we know that we are, I love Seth Godin, uh, his, his, his um, framework around like the lizard brain. Yeah. Now there's this ancestral part of our brain that is always making us recoil from anything that is not familiar. And we will always find a reason to not engage with something that is risky, um, that is you know, really more of a long-term bold project. Yeah. We will always kind of recoil to what's familiar and safe and completely unextraordinary. And so it's just so important that we, you know, press ourselves and trick ourselves. What, yeah, what, is, what are some of Seth's hacks for that? Do you remember? We've uh, had him on the show. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't watched that show, you should go back. It, it, he's, so, he's so smart about yeah, that Yeah, he stuff. really is. And he has such a good, um, simple way of, of, uh, of making the case that um, we just have to kind of push ourselves and, and manage, you know, what he likes to call the dip. Um, yep. And uh, uh, and I've always you know he's been a mentor of mine over the years and, and I, I find it uh, always a helpful reminder to myself. So talented. Um, so we've been talking. A your a thank you. Yeah, your your, awesome. your vision for being able to help. Uh, I'll say us we in the creative community navigate these challenges. Yeah. it's like you've you've come along and you've provided an operating system for for so many of us. Um, but let's talk about you personally for a second. That's another thing I didn't 
find a lot of on the internet. You're very good at talking about a lot of things that are out there and, and analyzing and providing structure and framework. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's the goal of this show t- for people to hear or learn something about you that they can't find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So rather than me being prescriptive and trying to pry that one thing open, like what, what are, you know, if, if folks looked under the hood uh, or into Scott Belsky's life, what are, what are some of the things that they would find that they would be surprised to find? Hmm. Um, let's see. Let's dissect my own brain for a moment. Uh, I think that, I think that I, uh, hmm. I think I do I engage with too many things. So I'm always trying to, you know, my, my struggles are things like saying no. Um, a lot of people probably say this, but I am a optimist. And, um, you know, I think that there's, it's great to always see the potential of a person or a product or an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also has a lot of negative repercussions as well. I mean, first of all, as an investor, yeah. Um, or a poker player. <laughs> you are always supposed to be folding. You're always supposed to be seeing what is wrong or what is not going to work. And, uh, and so that's not natural to me. Like, I push myself to be better at that I'm always. I'm a terrible poker player. Right, because I'm always like, I, I can make these cards Same. work, you know? <laughs> Same. <laughs> I'm going to get this card, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And, yep. and I think there's a gift for being able to think that way. Yeah. But I also think it's a just tremendous liability. And so what we're all trying to do as human beings, right, is embrace the things that we're good at, but complement the things that we're bad at with some other discipline that is not native, right, mm-hmm. not natural to us. Yeah. That creative's compromise is, is something that I deal with myself. So, you know, that's something I'm always trying to be better at. Also, like when it comes to fiercely defending your time, it's just like time is just so, so, so like, you know, redundant and cliche at this point, but gosh, like it, but it's, it's, not never, it's a never-ending struggle yeah, it's to be able to focus on the things that you believe will make, you know, make the greatest impact and are most important to you. And for me also now, that's family too. Yeah, congratulations. You know, thank you, you know, I have two little little kids now and they're, uh, you know, it's, it's the things you took for granted obviously before. I also believe that they make you more productive too because the time you have for your work is even more, more precious. You put them down for a nap and you have X, yeah, you have an hour. You have a window. <laughs> so it's, um, but it's also a new, a new realm of excuses that you could bring into your life as to why you're not making progress on things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to just be honest with yourself and to compartmentalize the time you want to spend on your work and then also truly be present you know, with your family. I think also around the role of like struggle in childhood and how that impacts kind of your work later on. Um, I have a younger sister who's, a, I have two younger sisters. Um, uh, one who, the middle one, who's a few years younger than I am. When she was born and I was probably, you know, four or five years old, um, she, uh, she lost oxygen when she was born. And, uh, and for, you know, for some period of time, and what we didn't know at the time, but soon learned was that it would really became like a real um, impairment, you know, her development. And, uh, and she was not able to talk for many years. And she, you know, was always like a constant concern for my family. Yeah. Reasonably so. Of course. And as a result, I was kind of, you know, my, I had this like very, you know, independent zone of being on my own to some extent, you know, from some, some age young. And, uh, and my parents were always there for me and, you know, uh, and when I needed them, but there was this kind of, you know, on your own type of feel 
which I think developed me in great ways to some extent, yeah. um, but also is always like that sort of, uh, you know, left, left a lot of weird, you know, stuff that I will always reconcile with, including my relationship with her, yeah. but also the, um, the, uh, the, the angst and like what is motivating me and why and all these other things. And yeah. it's one of those things that I'm trying to, uh, you asked me like personally yeah. and like things I think about but I don't talk about. I'm always thinking like, what is the role of struggle in, in, in a creative's life? I think it's common that you hear, you know, from people that have embarked on kind of creative careers that yeah. they're, they're driven by some, some struggle. Um, a friend of mine from high school, uh, Rachel Platten, you know, who's a pop star now. Um, she wrote that song, Fight Song, and like all these other <laughs> oh, wow. you know, sort of you went to high school radio her. common. Yeah, so uh -huh. Rachel uh, and I were friends in, in high school and we were in an acapella group traveling together. I don't know how I made the cut for this acapella group. I'm going to sing here a second. <laughs> <laughs> but she, you know, she, I remember, you know, I watched her career, you know, over, over the time that she was in really like 10 years of just struggling and making it, you know, trying to take any kind of gig she could get. And these were all, you know, I always felt like a lot of the songs, you know, were just poppy and light and whatever. Um, and she wasn't really cutting through. And then it was only at this like really bad point 10 years in where she was about to give up and like throw in the towel, where she wrote this song, Fight Song, which was just like a guttural, you know, honest call to rallying cry, yeah. you know? And it became her major hit yeah. that hit the top of the charts. And it was, you know, came from like a, a bad place. That's common. Yeah. And so in some ways we have to, over the course of our lives, you know, figure out and reconcile, you know, those bad places that we've been at and, and or are still at and pull great stuff from them um, and, you know, and, 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 and learn to live with them and, and somewhat, you know, reconcile them. Well, that's part of the show is helping people understand that these, these huge colossal boulders in each of our lives, they're both incredibly, they're, they're so weighty and they can bring us down, but they're also something that we can stand on and that the juxtaposition of those two things and a uh, mutual friend of ours, Ryan Holiday, yeah. he's also been on the show, but called The Obstacle is the Way. Yeah. Which, um, stoic philosophy, I, I, A, the book is awesome, B, but conceptually the the thing that is, that in the struggle, that's often the thing that can be our differentiator. Yeah. So, Here's yeah. what I'm always wondering though, is like should we want to actually overcome the struggles, like really truly conquer them, like where will we be if we do that? Where's the energy? Yeah. What happens if you win? Is right. it, does the energy dissipate? And I guess maybe life always offers a struggle. Yeah. And maybe it's just about finding it and capitalizing on it. Maybe it's like, whether there's a lot of it or a little of it, the potency of it is so great that if like harness like kryptonite, you can like, you know, get all the power you need. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, um, so I'm gonna shift gears. Because I want to know, and I think the world wants to know a little bit about, um, again, came from Goldman, you know, founded a company, worked as a creator with creators, built something up that um, is now a, a, a piece of cultural literacy to have a portfolio and to talk about the creator and all of us. It was, you know, I would say uh, five years basically ahead of Create Alive and it's in the community aspect but now very, very aligned with what you guys are working on or have worked on. You, and, you, know, you founded a couple of other things. You went to work at Adobe, mm -hmm. which I found interesting as a part of your transition yep. uh, um, through the acquisition. A, what was it like going from being your own boss 
to inside uh, a machine, if yeah. you're a big publicly, you know, 50 billion whatever market cap company, was it empowering because you had resources? Was it stifling? And you know, what you know, help us understand what that journey is like for you, and and maybe we can extrapolate and see what it would like for uh, for the rest of us. Sure, the uh, the experience of coming in and I actually stayed for over three years, you know, at Adobe, um, really exceeded my expectations. I, I was worried that this big company and you know the yeah. bureaucracy and you know, an assumption that there's this politics and whatever that comes along with it would really, um, would really like kind of dampen my spirit. Um, on the contrary, I got kind of riled up by the opportunity. The, uh, the thing I loved about the people that work at Adobe is that, yes, it's a big company, there might be some complacency as being a big company, but the truth is they're all there because they want to make creative tools. Yeah. You know, it's, a lot of them could go other places that they wanted to, but there's this kind of, there's this gravity around, we're, we're creating like the tools that people used to create in the world. And there are a lot of designers and product managers and, and other leaders that take that super seriously. Yeah. And so it was fun to really get alignment across them and a lot of the other executives to push a few things forward. I mean, one of the things that I was asked to lead there, aside from Behance and those efforts, um, was mobile creativity. At the time that I got there, there were like a dozen different apps that all butchered the names of the desktop tools like Photoshop that had no compatibility with each other or with the desktop tools. I remember. Were like these $1.99, you know, kind of crappy apps on the App Store um, because they were experiments, right? And it's fine. Like that, but that wasn't really where the world was going. Now the company was a cloud business. You know, all the products had some cloud connectivity, and there was this opportunity to actually bridge mobile creativity and desktop creativity that no one had really tackled yet. And so um, I was given that sort of challenge and it was actually a team of nothing. There were, you know, it was sort of like build a new team to build this kind of mobile creativity vision. And so starting from zero and then, you know, I engaged a seasoned uh, vice president of engineering, this guy named Govind, and then Eric Snowden, who was a designer at Behance from Atlantic Records, who joined and became kind of our lead designer. And then the team kind of grew from there and it became an org of hundreds of people that were building all of these products on top of what we called the Creative SDK, which was a, uh, a technology that enabled the desktop tools and the mobile tools to work together in unison. And, uh, and you could kind of capture patterns and colors and shapes as vector objects and pull them in on Illustrator. I mean, there were all these kind of really cool things that we found in the lab and brought to see the light of day. And you can't do that at a small company. Yeah. You can't just uh, you know, easily get you know, a double-digit million-dollar budget to build something like this that actually impacts how the creative world works. Yeah, and impacts millions and millions of people. Like right. that's the, you get scale so quickly. You get scale. Yeah. And, um, and, but you have to be you know, willing to roll up your sleeves and tackle the day-to-day yeah. debates. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I found that I was you know, strangely enjoyed you know, the process of, of taking on sort of the ancestral thinking in the company and working with a lot of you know, my colleagues there who just wanted to make this happen. Yeah. So it's really come along quite well. And um, you know, one of those moments was when uh, Apple launched their iPad Pro. And, um, and I was tasked also with rebuilding the Apple relationship because I had a few relationships there. And as you know, from like the flash wars, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Apple-Adobe relationship was yeah. not in the greatest spot. Yeah. And so it was so great to rekindle that relationship and ultimately have our team represented in the keynote for the, app, for the iPad Pro launch where we were showing the power of these new, you know, these new apps on, on this device. 
and so we were in the demos, you know, where we were practicing it with the whole Apple executive team yeah. and stuff. And and it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, like we built this from the ground up. You know, there was zero mobile strategy. Now we've kind of brought Apple and Adobe back together and are debuting this vision on stage. And, uh, and so it was a great experience. And I, I left from that thinking, I could imagine coming in and leading a big company as well as a startup again. Like, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I could. I, I, I have an affinity for both. Well, it, I don't know. I launched Photoshop Touch for Adobe at Max on stage with this then CTO Kevin Lynch. Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, I don't. You were were you a part of the company at that point? It was right. I think that was two, before. That was before I joined. So I was probably like early 2012 or 2011. Yeah, or it was probably right in that window. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like the the um, the opportunities to to do stuff at scale as yep. a creator. Um, I, I think this is another thing. If I can send a message to the folks at home, every chapter of your career, and it's been it's really obvious with yours, and just how uh, Goldman led to building a business, building a business with you know being a creator, working with and for other creators. It, when that chapter closed, this other one opened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a hard thing for folks to see. It was even harder in my own career, um, like with Creative Live, for example. You go from managing your, your, your little team of hustler, photo creator folks to having an opportunity to tap something at scale. Is that just true at the upper end of the scale when you're, when you're a company builder? Or what does that look like for individual creators? What are what yeah. have you seeing? It's funny. Like one, of the, one of the principles I really ascribe to um, and I really also say this from my own experience, but also with a lot of my friends who are individual um, creative professionals or freelancers or whatever, is that, a, is that a labor of love always pays off. Maybe not as you would expect, but it just does. If you stick with it long enough and you are authentically doing what you love to do, uh, it just has a way. Because perhaps you have this gravity around you to, to pull in people that respect the fact that you're pursuing something that you love so much and then some other opportunity comes up and people are like, wow, he's so passionate and he's all he's truly you know, an authentic individual pursuing what he or she loves. Yeah. And so I want to bet on that person or I want to hire that person or whatever. All these stories end differently than people would have thought they would. Yeah. But a labor of love just has a way of paying off. It's infectious. It is. It is. You yeah. know, it's... Which is why I always encourage people to incrementally in their career take opportunities that bring you closer to that, you know, that overlap of your skills, what genuinely interests you, and whatever opportunities are presenting themselves. Like that, the overlap of those three things yeah. is really where you want to be. And if you can get to just get incrementally closer to that, what you don't want to do, what a lot of people do do, is they take a step away from that for a bigger paycheck. So it's like, oh, well, I'm getting this opportunity here, or I'm picking between two jobs. You know, one of them is a little bit more what I want to do. The other one is like better, better pay. I'm just going to do that for a while and rationalize to myself why that's a good decision. just doesn't end up working. That's gold right there. That's gold. So it's, it's critical that we touch on you as an investor mm-hmm. because I think that's a, a – it's from what I understand, it's – an amazing gift that you've either had or developed. <laughs> or luck. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's a little, there is a message in there that timing is everything and yep. it is very much around who, about who you surround yourself with. If you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, who you're spending time with, and does that create in part opportunities? Um, just to recap, been early in, um, in Uber, in Pinterest, in 
name five others and tell us about it. Sure. Um, you know, I think I try to I try to make sense of it myself um, because I became a accenter relatively by accident. You know, it was 2010. I was still an entrepreneur of a bootstrap business, having no business investing in other people's businesses. Um, <laughs> and uh, but um, I was introduced to Ben Silberman, who's the co-founder um, and CEO of Pinterest, and he was working on a product that was also a grid like Behance. And, uh, and had a real affinity towards designers. Um, and he really wanted to over-index on, um, you know, on the role of design at Pinterest. And, and, uh, and I just have an obsession with product. I mean, for those who've worked with me before, they just know I'm, like a, I'm a product thinker more than anything else. I love thinking about their onboarding experiences of a product and, you know, and what the defaults are and, and, you know, and, and how to Make a product, for example, you know, put the people's work before the brand of the product, and how to, you know, what are the structures? And I mean, I love thinking through product problems. Yeah. And so when I met him and was just kind of like jumping in and getting my hands dirty with what he was building, he asked me if I wanted to be an advisor, um, and uh, and he was also raising a seed round, you know. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'll do some sort of advisor Pinterest role. Interest as a seed round. Yeah, That's and I got conceptually, in conceptually. It doesn't. So um, and so when you do that. Uber was, I was working, um, I was working, again, bootstrapping Behance. We had a partnership with StumbleUpon, mm -hmm. which was Garrett. a company that had recently been bought back from eBay by Garrett Camp. And when we were one day in my office, in, which was also my home at the time, in New York, um, he was showing me a sketch that he had actually done on one of our notebooks that we were selling to creative professionals <laughs> to bootstrap ourselves. And it was like a sketch of like this livery service thing, you know, this mobile app. And uh, I said, do you want to like, you know, help out? You know, I was like, I was like, dude, you're a CEO. You just bought back your company and you're trying to make it. You I'm an entrepreneur struggling to make it and bootstrapping my business. What the hell are we what talking are we about? <laughs> this other third yeah. love here. Stay focused. That was my wisdom that I tried to impart <laughs> with him. Fortunately, he didn't listen. So, uh, so the opportunity to be an advisor, you know, and then an investor in his company. And so over the years, it's been other teams of people um, that I really love that I feel like are solving something the world needs, or creating something the world needs, um, that, allow, that have a product that I have an affinity towards, a problem that I want to partake in. Mm -hmm. you know, another example was Periscope. I really jumped in deep with these guys, with Joe and, uh, and Kayvon, yeah. and, um, and, you know, and became almost like a de facto part of that team, which was so much fun, um, because I really believed in what they were trying to do. And you know, with the opportunity to come into Twitter, I actually remained an advisor and signed on you know, a, a, an advisory deal with Twitter just to stay involved with that team and yeah. the product because I cared so much about it. So I have not, I'm not a thematic investor. Uh -huh. I'm by no means a financial investor. I'm not like scrutinizing their cash flow analyses and you know, their projections and all that stuff. You know, I am a product investor, I'm a mm -hmm. people investor. And, uh, and I also um, really believe that, that, um, that Technology, you know, can help, you know, help build communities and empower people, and uh, and and I just love partaking in those journeys. So, so those are, you know, and all my investments haven't worked out well. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> that's another. when you invest in super passionate teams trying to do crazy things, you know, a lot of them end up, um, you know, as as struggling and trying to find their way and stuck in the middle forever. But uh, but it's been fun and it's been rewarding and. Uh, you know, I even for a short period of time said I should just be a full-time investor. Yes. Um, what, I, what I realized doing that was I just missed being able to jump in with a product team for however period of time I want to. Yeah. You know, I, I just wanted to have a little bit more autonomy. 
in being able to focus on a new team like I am with Prefer right now, mm-hmm. and uh, and then maybe do some investments and then jump in on something else. So I just I realized that as an investor, I just needed that flexibility uh, in order to be happy. So two points there. One, uh, is it fair to say that I'm trying to make the connection that most of the experiences that have, you've had as a successful investor, to me and for this the audience, it's less about the actual investing and more about the people, yep. the communities that you keep, and are you pursuing your interests and commingling with like-minded people who are doing cool shit, yep. in this case, building products. Is it fair to say that it's that you were over-indexing on people and products? Yeah, over-indexing on people and products, and um, you know, and then letting my weakness for extreme optimism help me <laughs> forecast, like where could this potentially be? How can I get excited about it? Yeah. Um, and again, like, it's you know the 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 negative is there is there is that there's a lot of like stark realities that mm-hmm. hit the business really quickly that most investors would run away from. I just get masochistically interested, yeah. <laughs> and want to say like screw that like let's take this on you know, let's figure out um, how to how to how to turn this around you know let's you know they're they're saying that that's like a bad business model let's prove them wrong um, you know they're saying that that's not a good go to market you know let's 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 see if the, you know maybe maybe they're completely wrong like I just. I love that, and that's why also I love the early stage. The early stage of a company is when there's more of a, um, you know, it's it's more of a clean slate. You can question some massive assumptions, yeah, and uh, and it's less of like the later stage you know, iteration optimization of a business model. Yeah, sort of a builder versus an optimizer yep. mentality. Okay, so that was thing one. Thing two is. You talked very briefly about you had a stint as an actual investor, where yeah. that was your job, and it was with Benchmark. You yeah. hired. It's a vi- huge deal to get hired on at Benchmark. It's one of the only firms that I know of where you're in, your partner, you share equally with all the other partners. Usually, there's a, a big structure and hierarchy, and then you left seven months later to become, or you just like slightly extracted yourself yep. to become a venture partner, which for the, the parlance is basically. You you're connected to the firm. You can bring deals in, but you're not like on the, on the gun on the on the hook to, yeah, to do the, all the investments. Uh, yeah, and so was this yep. the question? Is was this that same paradigm you described earlier, where you decided paycheck over passion? You know, it was and one did of those it come things, back to bite you in the ass, or how, it, how do you look at it? It was a good lesson and learning point for me because I I, mean, I love the team there. I think that they're. You know, as an investor in a in a venture capital mm-hmm. fund, like there's no other fund I'd rather be invested in. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was a part of me that was saying, well, you know, since you've been a good investor, you should be doing this full time. And I almost submitted myself to like society's expectations of what mm-hmm. you should do given the opportunity, rather than what you would want to do, despite the opportunity. And uh, and it was it was just one of those really like big learning points for me. I knew very quickly, you know, in that full-time um, traditional venture capital role, that this was just like not a perfect fit. And uh, and then, yeah, but there was a big side of me that was just saying, "Make it work, man." Yeah, but so few people get the chance to do this. Yeah, for me, it was pro sports, going right. to play professional soccer. Okay, so everyone's like, "Oh my god, of course!" Well, it's just so that. obvious. Right. If you can, you're just going to go do this. Right. And you had to deal with that. You had to figure it out. It was tough. You know, and I think that it, it took um, it took months of sort of triangulation of like, what, what, why am I not feeling this fit, and what's going on, and and also like, I really have so much respect for the team, you know, and I actually, and I ben- I get the benefits of being a part of a firm like that, mm-hmm. and you know, fortunately for me, the team was like, well, what role do you want to play? 
you know, and, and I, they said, go and equip doc and like write up, like what would the role look like? And, um, and so I took a stab at it and they said, great. You know, there was like no <laughs> negotiation or. <laughs> but um, if that's not a yeah. lesson right there that you literally oh, can write your own script. Yeah, despite I think you can. the societal pressure. If you build the right relationships, you know, if you are honest and transparent and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I think in my case to my team there was like, I think yeah. I will add more value in this role. And I think they agreed. and. And um, and I also knew that then I would get the flexibility and the autonomy and the other things that kind of have always been part of my creative essence. Yeah. So uh, so I, I you know it was like a it was a great outcome from a difficult process. Yeah. Um, and it's but it shows you that any at any stage in life you know you can you, you can succumb to like the pressures of what people think you should do and the spotlight of seduction I like to call it from like a great opportunity um, that may not actually be a hundred percent aligned with what you love doing every day. And it's, um, it's easier said than done. You know, when you're in the thick of it, it's super hard to do that. I remember how hard it was to extract myself out of that Goldman job I had out of college. You know, here I just like landed on Wall Street because back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when you wanted to go into business of any kind, what did you do? You went to Wall Street and cut yourself, you cut, your, cut your teeth, you know, as an East Coaster. That's, yep. what you did. That's all you did. And, uh, and I remember realizing like, this is not where I should be, but I still struggled to extract myself because it's comfortable, people are like, oh, this is like a great job, you know, wow, like, you know, it's hard to extract yourself from that. Yeah. But I think that's part of what you have to do as a, as a builder is be willing to, you know, I love how Jeff Bezos always says, you have to be willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. And that starts with just initially making a step that no one understands and, uh, and learning to gain confidence from the doubt that you're getting. So smart. That little nugget of wisdom uh, that that will stand alone for a long time. So uh, I want to be mindful of our time. Uh, I want to go into a little bit of a speed round. Yeah, sure. Okay. So how important is design thinking, growth mindset for not just individuals, but, but, but huge teams? And how do you think about it? Yeah, well, I think that the design term, you know, the, the, the design thinking term is thrown around Appreciate. a lot, right? Yeah. But I think that we both agree it is it is really about thinking about your business and your communications and 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 how you merchandise strategy to your team and progress to your team in a design minded way. You know, it's it's uh, no one reads documents. No one has time to read business plans. They're static from the moment they're written. Sometimes a quick diagram or a nice you know pithy way of merchandising to your team or to your customers, what it is you're doing and why, can go way further than anything else. And that's the design problem, yeah. is tackling that and boiling it all down. So I love thinking about problems that way, and um, which is also why I believe that designers are, make great co-founders or founders, mm-hmm. um, and also having a design leader you know, have a seat at the table is almost like a given at this point. Yeah. And, um, and I also question companies that outsource design at this point. I get pitches all the time from businesses founded by business people or technologists that sort of outsource all their design to third parties. And it's like, if, if that's what you're going to compete with, like, how could you do that? Yeah, look at all the most successful companies of the, certainly the past 25 years. Yeah. You could argue longer. They had design as a, you know, Apple is a really, is a really, really easy thing to point at. 100%. But it's a core, core functionality right. that they have in the organization. Um, speaking of core, some of your, let's go to uh, uh, tools. Yeah. Um, some of the tools that you use, you mentioned 
you know, quip doc, you've already dropped a couple things, little nuggets throughout, but is there just a list of, like, if you think through your day, what are the, some of the tools that you use? Yeah, through the day, you know, I am I'm using Slack with different teams that I'm involved with. I, um, I love Wonder, Wonderless as a task management tool, which will eventually, I guess, migrate to Microsoft's task management application. We'll see uh, how I feel about that. <laughs> um, Evernote, um, I still use as a way to, like, every store day. content, yep. you know, and, and just... Um, and I, I'm a big proponent of just getting shit out of your mind and storing it away so you can just have the aperture open for other things or whatever you're focused on at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. So I am always trying to capture everything and file it away. And, and I also think that a lot of these thoughts are like fine wine. You know, you just kind of store it away. It accrues value over time. It becomes more interesting. You keep coming back to it and touching it again and touching it again. And then it becomes your next you know, big project. Um, how important to you are habits, and do you have some daily habits that you, it's like brushing your teeth, you don't leave the house without it? Yeah. You know, I don't have, um, well, I do brush my teeth every day. <laughs> I, uh, you have a couple <laughs> habits. Uh, yeah. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have too many of those habits. You know, yeah. I, I, um, I, I guess I'm anchored by the actionable stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly angered by a calendar, and I, schedule my time wisely and I also leave these like windows of non-stimulation to focus on stuff mm-hmm. rather than just always be reacting to whatever's coming into a, to, to me or whatever I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I don't, I have not, you know, indoctrinated like many, you know, habitual, you know, time-driven things I have to do. But even managing your time isn't a, perhaps like the world's best known uh, yeah. yeah, it's the best known tool or habit is yep. is habitually protecting time for the things that you find value in. If like you get what's it, El Luna, you get what you must have, not what you should yeah, have. Totally. And when you're going into something and you're like, why am I doing this? And you're starting to feel that doubt of frustration, like why is my time being spent doing mm-hmm. this? Using that to like correct decisions decisions going forward. And yeah, sometimes I'll email um, my assistant and just be like why did we, I should not have done this. Like, don't let me do this again. You know, just cause this is not going to push anything forward for me. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just trying to be nice and trying to say yes and like, just hold me accountable. Yeah. Uh, the role of diversity and inclusion yeah. in, in building products and companies and, um, I guess just the basis for human empathy. Tell you, I think all the time about this now. And um, I mean, there are the logical reasons why diversity is super important, like making sure that the team you're making decisions with reflects the customer base and having people from different experiences, you know, around the table who pull from different places. And uh, I think all of those things are very important. But the thing that I think is most important about diversity that is talked about a little less is the, you know, how you think at the edge of reason how you get to the point where you're almost being unreasonable in how something might be accomplished or what should be done. or It's, it's, it's the stuff that is explored and discussed and argued at the edge of reason that I think makes the greatest impact in a product, in a company, in an industry. Mm. And so if you surround yourself with people that are perfectly reasonable um, and groupthink makes people reasonable, groupthink kind of brings us down to the lowest common denominator when everyone around the table is trying to decide and get to something that everyone agrees with, that's when we land on something completely unremarkable. And so how do you keep thinking at the edge of reason 
and prevent yourself from just acquiescing to the, you know, to the mean, regressing to the mean, um, I think is having people around you that are just different than you, like, and really will think of things completely um, out of left field and, uh, and, and at the edge of reason as to what is reasonable to me, right? Yeah. And in o- the only way of fostering an environment that achieves that outcome is just to actually try to get people that on paper would, would likely think differently. I mean, yes, you know, their gender and background and ethnicity and socioeconomic experience and all these things cultural, are, yeah. are actually, you know, these cultural differences are maybe shortcuts to trying to build a team that is likely to have that ha- happen. Mm-hmm. But I get frustrated when people just see it as like biological checkboxes yeah. because it's, it's really a strategy. Yeah. I mean, this is freaking strategy. It's yeah. important. And, uh, and that's what you have to realize when there are a lot of teams that have been able to do that time and time again, keep pulling shit out of like, you know, out of the ether that makes these products more interesting. It's because they are surrounded by people that are not regressing to the mean and are willing to be independent thinkers and see things completely differently. So powerful. We've talked about you as an author writing books like Making Ideas Happen. We've talked about you, your journey from Wall Street to Silicon Valley. Um, we've talked about uh, some personal stuff. I, to me, that's all that, that's a beautiful story looking backwards. That's one of the ways you can, you know, one of the few ways you can connect the dots, right? But why don't you, before we leave here, tell us about what's next. Where are you going? Where shall we be looking for you? <laughs> Besides your name and lights again and oh, again. I don't know. Like, no, I think like, that, uh, we know your coordinates. We can put that in. Sure. We need to burn time on that. But what do you, I mean, is it, is it prefer? What, yeah. what, el- what else is it? Well, next I'm spending my you? time, you know, with a number of different smaller companies, you know, as an investor, an mm-hmm. advisor, you know, prefer is, is one of the biggest commitments I have now because I'm actually a co-founder of this yeah. business. And, uh, and I really care about the team. I think it's an exceptional team, and it's a big problem. It's just, just like the future of the economy and not having too many pr- independent professionals, which is the largest sector of the economy, commoditized, right? So um, I'm really fascinated by that problem. Yeah. You know, and prefer is, is an expression of like how to solve it potentially, right? So I focused a lot on that. Um, I'm focused on also a new, um, a new project chronicling what I like to call the journey in between or like the messy middle of entrepreneurs' journeys. I feel like we spend too much time focused on the starts and finishes of everything yep. and glamorizing the starts and finishes. And whether yep. the finish is a, an IPO, an acquisition, or a bankruptcy, it gets all the fanfare and the headlines. Yep. But how about like everything in between, the endurance and the optimization? Yeah, that's, that's that 90% doing part that totally. I talk about, the 10% dreaming and planning. That's the beginning, and right. at the end, how am I gonna dunk the ball when you're you know, uh, two inches away from the basket. Yeah. That's not really all that complicated. It's this, the messy middle is right. your term I've read before. So you're focused on... I want to uh, I I I really understand that better. And I want to help glamorize some of the middle tactics that would otherwise just be overlooked. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, anonymity, that, that, that mining this mundane middle, no one knows and gives a shit about what you're doing is both a blessing and a bitch, right? You can yeah. do all sorts of great things because no one's paying attention but only because no one cares. Um, and I think it's a lonely place. I, I would love to, uh, as entrepreneurs say, like, what was it like to work with Scott? Like, I would yeah. aspire to have them say that he was more helpful in the middle. You know, not just the product stuff, which I've been doing for some time, yeah. but also just managing that middle. And so um, I'm actually like, 
inscribing a lot of what I'm learning in that area. I'm doing interviews, and that's another side project I'm focused on right now. Yeah. Super so we'll cool. see, but it's um, you know I feel like I'm, I'm I'm in my zone now in terms of what I want to be doing and how I should be spending my time and and have a lot to learn, which is you know a good place to be. Thank you so. Thanks for much having me. For being here, yeah, really appreciate absolutely. it, bud. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say a a huge thank you. B let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet. On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platform. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.